But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Michael Cartran had been called out as backup for the sewerage problem. A local plumber had tried to remove a blockage, but it just wasn't budging. He had been called out to open up a manhole cover and get his hands a little dirty. It was the evening of February 8th, 1983, and the sun was setting. A resident of the building, Jim Alcock, was with Cartran, shining a light from his torch so that they could work. Cartran opened up the manhole cover. He was immediately hit with a rotting smell. I haven't been in the game for long, he said, but I know that isn't shit. Now, most of us have to deal with block drains at some point in our lives. The residents of 23 Cranley Gardens would be shocked to find the police involved in their plumbing issue the following day. Not only were human remains in the sewerage system, the man who lived upstairs had himself a terrible secret. On this episode, we'll be looking at Dennis Nilsson, the Muswell Hill murderer. Convicted on six accounts of murder and two attempted murder, Nilsson, by his own admission, could have killed as many as a dozen or more young men between the years of 1978 and 1983 in London. The two main sources for this episode are Killing for Company by Brian Masters. I won't be focusing on the psychoanalysis that the book really delves into, but if you're into the psychology of murderers, I would highly recommend the book. It features a lot of introspective writings from Nilsson himself. The other source for this episode is Russ Coffey's Dennis Nilsson, Conversations with Britain's Most Evil Serial Killer. Now, a little word of warning before we get into it. This episode will be sexually explicit in nature and contain themes of necrophilia. With that warning, let's have a look at the life and crimes of Dennis Nilsson. Nilsson was born to Betty White and Olav Nilsson on 23rd of November 1945. Betty was a rebellious sort, not an uncommon trait for someone living in Fraserborough. Those people had a long-standing history of defying authority. Betty had been out on the town enjoying a meal at a cafe with some friends when she met Olav. Olav was Norwegian and was stationed at the local port due to the war. It was the tail end of World War II. Both Mussolini and Hitler were dead and the bombings had stopped. Betty and Olav married on the 2nd of May. Her parents, Andrew and Lily, weren't exactly happy with the marriage, worried Betty was being a little rash in marrying him so quickly. 
Turns out they were correct. Olav no longer had an excuse for his frequent flights now that the war was gone, but that didn't stop him. They never really became sort of a family unit, despite Betty having three kids to him. That was Olav Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia. Betty and Olav would eventually split in 1948. Nilsson would write about his father, quote, In the heat and uncertainty of war, married my mother primarily on lustful grounds and ignoring some irreconcilable cultural and personality differences which doomed the match to failure. Betty and her kids shared a room at 47 Academy Road. Betty was in one bed with Sylvia, leaving Olav Jr. and Dennis to share the other. Dennis didn't really get along with his brother, and while he liked Sylvia, they weren't close. His mother would comment that she knew he was a little more reserved, but it wasn't enough to take note of, especially being a busy single mother. He would often wander off without telling anyone, and it began at an early age, his mother having to tie a string around him, tying him to the gate to prevent him from crawling away. When he was older, these walks often took him to the beach. Andrew and Lily, Nilsson's grandparents, helped with the raising of the kids. They were conservative, traditional people. Lily was against all things worldly, that is, cinema, dancing, and music that weren't hymns. Andrew was a straight-laced man. No drinking, no smoking. Andrew and Dennis were close. Nielsen writes about his grandfather, quote, I remember being born aloft on the tall, strong shoulders of my great hero and protector, my grandfather. Dennis was not yet six when Andrew died in October 1951. He was out at sea when he retired to his bunk one evening after putting the nets out. His crewmates found him dead the following morning. His body was taken home so that it could be displayed for the mourning family. Dennis didn't cry. Quote, Grandad was wearing glasses and expensive long johns. He was barefooted and needed a shave. He looked as if he was sleeping. No one really told Dennis what was happening. He figured that Andrew was very ill and would just come better later. It was months before he realized that Andrew wasn't waking up. The delayed grief was too much for him, and so he buried it, refusing to acknowledge it. My trouble started there. It blighted my personality permanently. I have spent all my emotional life searching for my grandfather, and in my formative years, no one was there to take his place. When people talked about Andrew, they spoke of how he went to a better place. To Dennis, Andrew had gone to a better place and not taken him with him. So death was a nice thing. Father and grandfather had walked out on me, probably to go to a better place leaving me behind in this not-so-good place alone. Andrew took the real me with him under the ground, and now I rest with him out there. Now, on this topic of his grandfather, in his writings later in life, Nielsen does reconsider his memories of his grandfather. There is a very definite shift in tone where he wonders if his grandfather 
might have actually been an abuser taking advantage of him. At the very least, there were situations that Nilsson can't quite recall where the opportunity would have been there. He suggests that maybe, just maybe, he might have been drugged at some point as a child. Ultimately, we only have his stories to go off of, though. His wanderings became more compulsive and he was moody. Not necessarily odd for someone grieving. He would go and walk on the rocks off the harbour and would watch the boats sail in the distance. It was a place away from the home where the family was trying to get on with their lives. And life did continue. Betty got involved with the faith mission. And so Dennis went to Sunday school and church. On Saturday, he and his brother were given seven pence each to go to the pictures, with an additional two pence for wine gums, that is, jelly lollies. Later in their lives, there was a television that they could go and watch at the mission for deep sea fishermen. The family would eventually move to a house of their own, an old building in the back lots, with steep stairs in a common area that the other flats shared that held air raid shelters that the kids would climb around on. It was soon after that that Betty would marry again, a builder named Adam Scott. Betty and Adam would go on to have four kids together. Betty recalls that Dennis began to actively repel demonstrations of affection, and Dennis confirms that he felt cold and distant to his family. In those days, I could hate Adam Scott very easily. I was, I suppose, very jealous of him having a relationship with my mother. I sometimes felt that we, the Nielsen kids, were an impediment to her fulfillment in her new life and family. I was a very lonely and turbulent child. I inhabited my own secret world full of ideal and imaginary friends. While he wasn't close friends with any of the local kids, he did rear pigeons with them. There were two that he loved, a black one named Tufty and another one with white tips named Jockey. They were trained to come to him when he called. One day, another boy killed the birds. Nilsson was inconsolable. In the most empathetic way to handle this situation, Betty and Adam just put an all-out ban on animals. No more pigeons, no animals, not happening. Now the sad thing about this is... Dennis found a lot of joy in animals, and his moods might have actually been sedated had he been allowed to foster that joy. I felt very close to the land and all things animated upon it. I would be repelled by the shooting of crows and rabbits. A rabbit, to me, was one of the least offensive creatures which hopped about. I was horrified by the sight of rabbits infected with myxomatosis, I would kill them as they staggered blindly about with swollen eyes and dying of starvation. I was not allowed to have any pets, save one white rabbit which I kept in a small hutch with a wire window. It died in the winter. I was accused by my parent and step-parent of starving it to death. This, as a child, hurt me deeply. This rabbit incident was a little after moving to the new home, ten minutes inland from Fraserborough in 1955 when Dennis was 10. Adam was making some good money at the time. Dennis was enrolled to Strichen School, where he made very little ripples in the pool, not achieving anything but not really being a menace either. 
though during these years he would come to see himself as an outcast and a radical. I began life with an instinct and training for Christian virtue. I believed in the justice of the establishment and in the reality of democracy. I felt the injustice I encountered could only be some terrible mistake to be righted when the causes were exposed. Coupled with injustices which happened to me, I felt that poverty was a reflection of character imposed upon me through natural injustice of those good families were good because of their background and deserving of rewards and advancement. I felt I should be grateful for the crumbs from the master's table. This may have come from the influence of his uncle Robert Ritchie. Ritchie was on the forefront of social issues and the two had a bond. It was Ritchie that introduced Dennis to, quote, worldly music that he didn't hear earlier in his life. This music was ultimately just like classical music, but still. Ritchie also introduced him to filmmaking. We'll talk a little bit about his filmmaking later. For now, let's continue with school. He had a few mates, but would often be by himself when he had spare time. At 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force, had his first beer, and passed out. At school, his best subject was art, and he did well at English, but barely passed mathematics. During potato season, he would help out with tater picking, though he would come to find that fieldwork wasn't really for him. Now, we do have a couple of important events during this time that we need to talk about. First was when Dennis and another boy, Gordon Barry, joined the town in search of a missing old man. They found the old man. They found his corpse by the river. The old man's mind was gone and he had wandered out of his house during the night and fell into the river. The image of the old man's body melded with the image of his grandfather's and fixed firmly in his mind. He could never fully comprehend the reality of death. The next event was with someone in his sister Sylvia's class, someone that Dennis admired from afar, who he thought was beautiful, enigmatic, different. He was a boy who was the son of a local minister. He was confident, and Dennis felt inferior and ashamed. He had never spoken to the boy, he just sat watching him. This was the first time he had an attraction to anyone, let alone another male. But it was not the first contact he'd had. Let's roll back to when he was eight just for a little bit. Nielsen recalls, quote, One of my treks along the beach, I was feeling pretty miserable. I stopped and took off my shoes and socks, and I steadily moved forward up to my waist. I could see a much older boy sitting further up the shore, poking the sand with a stick. I must have stepped into a hollow because I suddenly disappeared underwater. I could hear a loud buzzing in my head, and I kept gasping for air, which there was none. I felt myself suspended in the void. I felt very cold at first but this changed to a neutral feeling. Then I could feel the warmth of the sun. I was vomiting and gasping. I was aware of the blue air and a breeze on the sandy hollow dunes. My clothes were spread out on the long sand grass. I felt a pressure on me and sank into a deep sleep. 
I coughed a bit and felt my raw throat. I sat up and covered my nakedness with my hands, noticing a white, sticky mess on my stomach and thighs. I wiped it off with the sand. He never told anyone about that encounter. His mother scolded him for disappearing on her for so long. Early in his adolescence, after admiring the boy from school, he acted. Not towards the boy, though. You see, Dennis still shared a bed with his older brother, Olov. One night, when he was sure his brother was asleep, he went about exploring. He stopped once he realized his brother was aroused. If his brother did wake up, neither of them spoke of that incident. Dennis Nilsson left school at 15, still sexually inexperienced and emotionally untried. He didn't have a best friend, no other encounters with boys, no real want to try anything with girls. His only experience was free re from rejection, a boy admired from the distance and the touching of a sleeping body. He was certainly aware by this point about his attraction to men, and he felt the need to repress these feelings which came with a feeling of guilt. In his mind, if something needed to be hidden, it was wrong. He would come to think of himself as bisexual rather than completely homosexual. We'll circle back on this a little bit later. Once when he was watching TV, he became captivated with a ballet with male dancers on it. It excited him. His mother shouted at him to shut this filth off, in which he felt a knee-jerk hostility towards her. Upon leaving school, he joined the army. He decided he would be a chef. He signed on in 1961 for a nine-year run. He was first assigned to Army Catering Corps, A Company Junior Leaders Regiment. Nielsen was at Aldershot between 1961 and 1962 with 20 other young recruits. They were divided into V and W squads, uh, Nielsen being assigned to V squad, and he flourished under the strict discipline of army routine. You see, his confidence grew, and he would write that this time was the happiest of his life. He was just another person, just any old person, same as everyone else around him. Nielsen made friends with all the men. One in particular, Brian Basher, became a confidant. That was until he left the army. On the weekends that the men got their 72-hour weekend passes, most of them went and visited family. Those that were unfortunate enough to have family too far away would go camping. Nilsson would join them. He found himself having trouble with physical exercise of the role, so Nilsson would apply himself to extra training, forming a team to participate in a 10k march over the hills in Dartmoor. This training made him incredibly fit. Nielsen would go on to pass his senior education test and get the equivalent O-level in maths, English, catering science, map reading, and current affairs. The B2 catering exam helped him accelerate into his preferred career choice. Simply put, the comradeship drew Nielsen out of his shell. 
His first posting as a private was to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers in Osnabrück, Germany. While he had a drink or two before this time, he began to drink more frequently when stationed there. His fellow soldiers noticed he was drunk more often than not compared to the rest of them. While in Germany, there were no further sexual encounters for Nielsen, who was still repressing that side of himself. Now keep in mind, it is the 60s and it is the army. He was paranoid about some abnormality about his body and would only take baths, not showers. He was worried that the gay would be clear to anyone if they saw him in the shower. His first real sexual encounter with another man would come in 1967, when he was put in charge of the catering at Trucial Omen Court's mess in Shaha. He was an NCO at this point, which meant that he was privy to a private room. During his time there, there was an Arab boy who, let's say, offered himself freely to any officers who were willing. When I had the privacy of my own room, as an NCO, sexual expression became more complex. The novelty of one's own body soon wore off, and I needed something positive to relate to. My imagination hit on the idea of using a mirror. By placing a large, long mirror on its side, strategically beside the bed, I could view my own reclining reflection. I believe it was something else. I would give the reflection some animation, but the play could not be drawn out long enough. The fantasy could dwell much longer on a mirror image which was asleep. Thus began, according to some psychiatrists, a distorted narcissism in which the desired object was, as far as appearances were concerned, dead. Now this may have been compounded by the feelings of loneliness that he was destined to be alone for his entire life, never to enjoy a normal human relationship. He didn't feel anything for women, and his love of men he felt he had to hide. If he were to explore these feelings, he would have to do it in private. Now, I feel like I have to point out it's not unusual for mirrors to be used when exploring sexuality. What makes it noteworthy in Nielsen's case is that the body in the mirror had to be still and the head not visible. He was aroused by the image of himself, but only his self as a dead man. The time with his brother may have been an introduction. It was with the mirror that he fostered the feelings that sex and death were entwined. Nielsen's fantasies became more and more depraved. One fantasy in particular would provide somewhat of a framework for a lot of his future murders. He imagined an attractive young Nazi soldier who was recently killed by an Arab man. The Arab has sex with the dead body before washing it and moving it. To finish off the fantasy, Nielsen describes how he Quote, loosened his hold on the boy's back and legs, and his naked form flopped askew in limp rest, still impaled on the man, spread eagle in pure lust. Nielsen took the opportunity to explore these feelings via way of sexual assault when he was back in England. He and a young private, Frank, 
shared a train to Bristol. The two began to drink till Frank passed out. Nielsen, knowing the advantage that this put him in, took Frank into the bathroom and propped him up on the toilet. He bashed Frank's head against the back of the toilet to ensure he was unconscious. Nielsen then undressed and orally abused Frank while inserting a finger into his anus. Nielsen was aroused and considered raping Frank. The bashing on the door scared him off and he hurriedly washed Frank and wiped off the stain on his jacket. After a spell at home, he was stationed at Montgomery Barracks, where he and a bunch of the lads brought themselves a few minutes each with a prostitute, a female one. While it was an overall disappointing experience for him, the fact that he reached completion convinced him that he was, at the very least, bisexual. He does say that he had no desire to repeat the experience, especially when sober. In 1970, we see Nelson stationed at Mayberry on the Shetland Isles. Here, he considered himself a romantic and artistic figure. With permission from the army, he enrolled in a film course and got himself some camera equipment. At first, he took landscape videos, rolling waves and the such. He would be stationed in Scotland after he completed his course, but would end up back in the Shetland Isles by 1972. Terry Finch was an 18-year-old private who was placed on Nilsson's staff. Finch and Nilsson got along fairly well. Nilsson began to teach Finch about the camera equipment, and Finch began to help him with the cutting and editing of films. The subject matter changed from more generic landscapes to something that could be more identified as films. Nilsson was the director, and Finch the actor. Some of the scenes involved Finch lying down, playing dead. I was certainly excited by a passive image of him. Afterwards, when he was not around, I would watch all the footage of him, and afterwards need to go to the bathroom and masturbate. Nielsen took every opportunity to touch Finch, a pat on the chest, stuff like that. He would sometimes pretend to pass out next to Finch, in the hopes that Finch would touch him to try and wake him up. Once, Nelson took a drunk, homesick Finch's hand, and Finch didn't immediately remove it. As far as Nelson was concerned, that was confirmation of an understanding between the two. Nelson propositioned him. I have the only key to the laundry room, Nilsson told him, so we wouldn't be disturbed. Finch was not a homosexual. He pushed Nilsson away and left. From there, a rift between the two formed. Nilsson rationalised that there must have been a closeted sergeant that was stealing Terry Finch away from him. While drunk, he even went to the hotel room of a sergeant one that he believed it was, and told him that he knew he was a homosexual. Whatever came of that, he ended up leaving the army after serving 11 years and 84 days. He left with the rank of corporal and a decoration for his service. After spending some time at home, Nilsson went south to stay with his brother Olof. There was an unpleasant moment there while he was staying. The 1961 film Victim was playing on the TV. 
Now, those of you who are fortunate enough not to have seen Victim, the plot centers on blackmail about homosexual encounters. It's quite a good film. I really would recommend it if you don't mind watching some older style films. But back to the living room when the film was playing, Olov began to talk rather disparagingly about queers and directed these comments towards his brother. Nilsson took off first thing in the morning and never spoke to his brother again after that. Later conversations with his mum seemed to indicate that Olov at the very least suspected Nilsson was gay from that point. After taking off from his brother's place, he landed in London. He contacted the Army Career Advice Service. They suggested the police force. So by the end of 1972, Dennis Nilsson was in a single room in the Metropolitan Police Training School in North London. He went through the motions of learning on the job. One little issue popped up in more ways than one, you'll see. He needed to swim as part of his passing. Nilsson, you see, had a little case of thalassophobia, and so he had a fear of water. So he claimed to be a weak swimmer. This meant that he would have to have lessons. These lessons involved saving a colleague who acted unconscious in the water. Nilsson could certainly save the man, but he would have to find excuses to stay in the water until he... <clears throat> calm down, the exercise was reawakening his fantasies. Outside of work, he started to get into the club life, eventually zeroing in on gay nightclubs specifically. He went home with a young man one night, but was chased away by the housekeeper before anything could really happen. In 1973, Nelson passed his exams, earning high marks, and began working as a probationary officer. He had himself a mentor, Peter Wellstead, who was running him through the job on the beat. Wellstead thought it was a good idea for young officers to understand all aspects of the job and would take greenhorns to the morgue to view the bodies. Nelson wasn't particularly worried, having seen battle-damaged bodies before. In the morgue, they saw open bodies mid-autopsy, heads sawn open and exposed brain matter. While other trainees felt at least a little ill, Nelson seemed pretty much fine with it all. On one slab was a young girl, 12 years old. Her hair was cut short, like a boy. As the coroner wheeled her around, her hand dropped from her side. Nelson became aroused and couldn't stop imagining the coroner abusing the body. That night, he was out on the town, making his way through a local gay bar. He spotted a teenage boy, one he had met before during a social visit at a gay drop-in centre. The two drank until they were drunk. Nelson asked if he would like to spend the rest of the night at a hotel. On the way there, they bought themselves some more rum. At the hotel, the kid passed out on one of the two single beds. Nelson had another unconscious body before him. Nilsson then anally raped the unconscious boy. In the morning, the two parted ways as if everything was normal. Before leaving the police, Nilsson would have another encounter with a man named Derek. This one was consensual, but Derek was more promiscuous than Nilsson would have preferred, and he cut ties. 
Between the end of 1973 and 1974, Nilsson filled his time with a couple of odd jobs. One of these jobs was as a security guard at the National History Museum, and I'm only mentioning it because of an encounter with a gorilla. See, there was a taxidermied gorilla in storage out back. One night, Nilsson was staring at the gorilla until the heat of the moment caused him to strip down and place the gorilla's hand on his naked body. In his mind, the gorilla was whisking him away as if he were Anne Darrow. The fantasy was shattered when he saw that the gorilla had, quote, a pathetic little stump for a penis. He put his clothes back on. Dilson would eventually find work as an office clerk, where he stayed for eight years until his arrest. There his colleagues nicknamed him Des, and if women in the office asked if he were gay, Des would politely smile and just quietly confirm it. He was friendly with everyone, and more often than not he would join when invited to outings, though he would frequently leave early to go to queer clubs. In the summer of 1975, he met 17-year-old David Painter at the job centre he worked at. Nelson would have known the sensitive position he was in with the knowledge of Painter's mental problems. Either way, he sought an encounter with Painter, getting him drunk back home before making a move on him. Painter rejected Nelson and got violent, brandishing some glass to keep Nelson away from him. Nelson called the police and Painter was taken to the hospital where he told the police that Nelson had attempted to assault him sexually. Painter's parents chose not to press charges. It would be soon after this that Nilsson had a chance at the domestic life he always longed for. First, his father passed away and he got an inheritance of £1,400. He also found out that his father's name wasn't Nilsson, but Moxheim. With the money, Nilsson got himself a place at 195 Melrose Avenue, and filled it with some nice furnishings. He moved in with a new man in tow, David Galligan, who he'd met a weekend prior. A quick letter to the agent allowed him to make changes to the communal garden, since no one was using it. And since no one was using it, he sectioned it off so that the only access was through his bedroom's French windows and a paved pathway along with making spots for animals. He had a budgie from the previous address, and he got a fish pond for some... fish. He also went to the pet store and got himself a black and white mutt puppy that he called Bleep. Important to note this, because I really don't recall many serial killers that had pets. Maybe the toy box killer, who will be featured in a later episode, like, much later. Either way, David wanted a cat, and they called it Dee Dee, though Nilsson would be the one to look after it after they split. They had a menagerie of animals. They all seemed to be going well. There was just a little problem with Nilsson and Galligan. Nothing major, just that they were totally incompatible. Maybe that comes from knowing the person for like a week, and only a week. They shared very little in common apart from being homosexual. Even then, Nilsson was reserved and wanted to settle down. Gallican wanted to get out there. He would eventually spend nights in other men's beds, only joining Nilsson 
on special occasions, like when Nilsson's half-brother Andrew was in town, or when there was a work function. Now, that isn't to say that during this time, Nilsson was completely faithful uh, either. In March 1976, he brought home a 15-year-old boy, but nothing ultimately happened between them. Later in April, Nilsson went under the knife in an operation to fix up a gallstone problem. Gallican didn't visit or call when he was in hospital recovering. Nilsson would go on to have more encounters with random men here and there, even one with a woman, just to be sure that he could still perform with a woman. The end of his relationship with Gallican, however, was in spring 1977, when Gallican left town with an antiques dealer. Two weeks prior, Nilsson had blown up at him. Bleep had herself some puppies, and Nilsson asked Gallican to watch the puppies while he went out. A reasonable request. Two puppies had drowned in the pond when Nilsson got back. He was livid. Back to being single, Nilsson threw himself into his work and got additional responsibilities as a union rep, leaving himself just enough spare time to enjoy listening to music and walking bleep two times a day. In 1978, Nilsson met a man named Martin Hunter Craig, 18-year-old and new to London. He shared a night with Nilsson and would continue to drop in and visit him until his arrest. Now, all the while this was happening, Nilsson's mirror fantasies hadn't gone away. No, 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 no. They had become more and more elaborate. He writes, quote, I put talc on my face to erase living colour. I smear charcoal under my eyes to accentuate a dark, hollow look. I lie staring-eyed on the bed in front of the mirror and let my saliva foam and drip out of my mouth. I step outside of myself in a detached imagination. I have been executed and left there by the SS. I am a French student. The other person, an old hermit, drags my body back to his old shack. He decides I have no further use for the clothes and begins to strip my limp body. He washes me, ties my penis, and puts some wadding in my anus. He sits me on the chair, and then he puts me over his shoulder and carries me back into the woods and buries me. He later returns and digs me back up and takes me back to his shack. He masturbates over me, and my penis comes to life, and I ejaculate. It was New Year's Eve of 1978. Dennis Nilsson was 33 years old, and had spent Christmas alone. He was taking comfort in the bottle. He drank at a local pub and struck up a conversation with a young Irish man. They went back to Melrose Avenue and undressed. No sexual contact occurred that night. Here's how the night went down, according to Nilsson. The fire had been going all night. Nilsson removed the blanket from them and began touching the man, named Stephen Holmes. Nilsson was aroused. He looked down at the pile of clothes by the bed and saw a tie. He grabbed the tie and slipped it under Holmes's neck. Nilsson straddled him and pulled tight. Holmes was immediately awake and thrashing. They struggled off the bed and across the room, knocking the coffee table over. Eventually, 
Holmes fell limp. Nilsson dropped the body, only to notice that it had resumed breathing. He ran to the kitchen and filled a bucket of water. Returning to the unconscious body, he dunked his head under and held it down until the bubbles stopped. He pulled the now dead man's head from the water and went and ran a bath. Like his fantasies, he went about washing the body, soaping him up and eventually wiping him down and placing him on the bed after dressing him. Nilsson went for a walk to clear his head. Back in the flat, Nilsson took the clothes off the body and dressed him in white Y-fronts, a vest, and some socks. He had himself a bath and then crawled into bed with the corpse. Nilsson removed the pants and explored the body under the covers. When he tried to enter the body, Nilsson's erection subsided. Nilsson moved the body onto the floor next to the bed and fell asleep. The following morning, Nilsson thought the best course of action would be to rip up the floorboards and hide the body there. Rigor mortis had set in and the body was difficult to move, so he left it for a day and a, a little while later it was a bit easier to move into place. He ripped up Holmes's clothes and threw the shoes away. After about a week, Nilsson wondered if the body had begun to decompose. He stripped down naked before getting the body up and taking it to the bath. The body was still intact. He washed the body again and laid it on the bed. Nilsson then stood over the body and masturbated onto his bare stomach. Hanging him from the top of the bed frame, Nilsson left him upside down for the night. The following morning, he masturbated on the body again before wiping him down and briefly considering chopping the body up. He couldn't do it, so he placed the body back under the floorboards, where it remained for the next seven and a half months. August 11, 1979, he pulled the body out and placed it in the center of a bonfire he had created the day before. To mask the smell of the burning flesh, he threw in some old rubber. He then went about his life as if nothing had happened. And that is where we will end this episode on Dennis Nilsson with his first kill of many yet to come. This has been the Sects and Murder podcast, and I've been your host, Keenan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>